We're good. All right. Good morning, everyone. It's Dr. Eric, the fitness physician with another awesome episode of the Relentless Vitality Podcast. I'm super excited. I got a cool guest on the show today uh, from across the pond. His name is Ralph Kenny. He runs a very nice company. Uh, and I'll let him explain uh, immortality. And he comes to us from Montenegro, but he is a uh, U.S. native and he's been doing well and has an awesome product and website and uh, email and blog uh, site that he puts out for his uh, clients and listeners. So, uh, Ralph, welcome to the show, my man. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And thanks thanks for the kind words and the introduction. Absolutely. Um, so, <clears throat> go ahead. No, I was just going to say, so go ahead and just, uh, excuse me, for all my listeners, just uh, if you want to just tell uh, like a little bit about yourself, how you got, uh, you know, your company, uh, how you got started, and then we'll dig into tea and health and a bunch of other stuff. <laughs> sounds good. So by education, I'm a bit of a strange uh, duck in this in this business. I, my, by education, I'm a physicist and electrical engineer. And uh, I started out my professional career at uh, AT&T Bell Laboratories uh, back when Bell Laboratories was a thing doing hardcore R&D on you know, things like uh, packetized voice. So, you know, right now you and I are talking over technology that I worked on back in the day. Cool. Um, and I had the, I had the good fortune uh, after, after my career at Bell, Bell Laboratories to do a startup that uh, went public. And I took the money and ran. <laughs> and um you know i wanted to tell people that i was that i was retired but i was only in my early 40s and it felt really weird to tell people i was retired and so uh, a friend of mine was living in thailand at the time and he said you know look uh i you know i've discovered this really amazing herb called uh jalgalon or uh gynostoma. and you know i'm trying to i'm trying to make it a thing would you be interested in helping me out and I agreed to do it mostly because I was tired of trying to explain to people why I was retired at age 40 something. So I, uh, I started, I got into the tea business sort of by accident. Uh, but once I got into it, I really fell in love with the whole thing. And I, I started Immortality. Um, originally, we were 100% focused on the one herb, Jalgalon. Uh, which, you know, I still would say if you're only going to drink, you know, one herbal tea for, for health and longevity, you know, that's that's the one I would say is my go-to. Over the years, we've added other uh, traditional Chinese medicine-based herbs. So, you know, we we expanded from Jalgalon to uh, white mulberry, and then uh, we added hibiscus and uh, buckwheat tea and, you know, some blends over the years. So we're, we're still hyper-focused. It's a very small company. Um, you know, our, our, um, we, we, over the years, we had to change from Thailand to China for our sourcing because in Thailand, they started this thing of an annual burn-off hmm. where the, they would, the farmers just routinely just set all the crops ablaze, burn the previous year's, uh, you know, um, whatever's left over. And then, you know, use the nitrates that result from that to, to replant. And that resulted in just tremendous pollution uh, in the northern part of Thailand where we were growing our teas. So we had to look for other suppliers. And, you know, now we're, most of our, our suppliers are, are based in China. But that's kind of a short, uh, short summary of it. We're, uh, we're still, you know, uh, a small uh, organic tea company, uh, USDA certified now for almost all of our products. Uh, my, uh, my side gig is in the genomic space. So I'm also a chief operating officer of a genetics company. Hmm. And, you know, ha happy to talk about that as well, if that's, uh, if that's something you're interested in. Oh, definitely. I'm definitely interested in that. I've uh, done some genetic tests on myself and a few of my patients. So, yeah, hmm. well, I did not I uh, did not realize that. So let's definitely dig into that later. Sure. Um, sure. That's good. So tell, yeah, so for people maybe T naive, maybe you could touch on like, uh, what to look for in a good tea? I mean, are, and are, are there any concerns with, you know, I know sometimes when people are concerned about buying products in China, you know, is it contaminated their heavy metals or their, you know, that yeah. kind of, stuff, you know? Yeah, no, that's a valid concern. Um, you have to choose your suppliers very carefully. Um, there, you know, th there is widespread pollution in many parts of China. Um, herbs like uh, Gynostema uh, in particular, just suck heavy metals out of the soil. So, uh, you know, even when we were based in Thailand, it was something that we were constantly measuring and monitoring uh, because, um, you know, there, there are some herbs who are just prone to absorb it. Uh, you know, white mulberry is less of a problem 
they're a tree. Um, so, and they're, they have a hard waxy leaf. So they're, they're less prone to absorption of things like heavy metals from the soil. Uh, but uh, yeah, you have to be super conscious of, of where uh, you're, you're sourcing. Uh, USDA organic certification is good, but uh, just to be perfectly frank, it's often uh, gamed. Um, so you'll you'll find a lot of companies uh, in you know not just China but all over the world where they get a USDA organic certification for one small piece of land for one crop. And then they leverage that uh, that certification to certify a whole bunch of other stuff. So, gotcha. um, you know, the 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 real solution is feet on the ground. You have to go there and look, and you know, walk in the fields and talk to the people, and you know, go to where they do their processing. And um, you know, in in my opinion, there's just there's just no substitute for someone going and physically looking at at the operations and what's going on because. You know, big companies with great websites who all sound super reputable. And then, you know, you go and you look and you're like, okay, none of that's actually true. So, um, you know, pay a lot of attention to to the sourcing. Uh, look for a company who's doing minimal processing. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it, especially in the herbal space, it's, it's a weird thing because um, if you just pick the herbs and you dry them, the quality tends to be really bad. Um, you know, Jalgalon in particular is a good example. I mean, it's, it's this little tiny leaf. Um, and it, it, the, the way most people harvest it is, is they get a big machine and they just, you know, they mow it down. Right. Right. Uh, and so you end up with, you know, the stems and of the vine and um, these leaves and, you know, everything else that was there in one big pile. And then they put it someplace and they, you know, they sun dry it and it, it sounds great. But when you taste that tea, it, it tastes absolutely horrible. <laughs> so um, it takes someone who actually knows how to process each individual herb differently. So, um, for example, for, for um, you know, Jaugalan, you, you, we take it, it comes off the plant, um, we dry it on, you know, basically just big tarps in the sun, but we only do that for 24 hours. Then we take it to another place where people with great eyesight and a lot of patients sit there and pick the little tiny leaves off of each of the stems. Like it, oh my gosh. It, it's really challenging. It's hard to find people who will do that work because it's not fun. I'm sure. um, but then they sit and they, they, they pick each of the individual leaves off. And then we take the individual leaves and put them on a forced air drying system. So we dry them uh, using forced air. So, you know, there's this multi-stage process for, to do that. Right. Um, and then, you know, how you would do that for white mulberry is completely different. Um, so, you know, each herb requires a different processing mechanism to ma maximize both the efficacy from a, a medicinal standpoint and to, uh, you know, make it palatable, make it something you can, you can consume with, with pleasure yeah. as opposed to being something you have to choke down. So, yeah, I didn't realize it was that detailed, but it's pretty, it's a very painstaking process. It sounds like for sure. Um, and do you yeah. obviously, do you guys test them? Do you do heavy metal testing and things like that? I'm assuming so. Yeah, when, when we get the stuff to the U.S. So uh, before we start working with a farm, uh, you know, we, we have them submit uh, examples of their testing. So we make them do their own testing before we, we work with them. And then we have samples sent to the U.S. and we do testing uh, in the U.S. ourselves. And if everything clears, then uh, we go ahead and, and you know, start working with that farmer. Uh, and even then, we continue to test at least once a year and in most cases twice a year. Um, because, you know, even though, you know, you meet the people and you shake their hand and you, you make friends with them and you, you work with them over years, they can still change their sourcing or, you know, the, the, the quality can change for whatever reason. So, you know, you, you just have to stay on top of it and constantly be checking to just make sure that, that what you think you're getting is, is still what you're getting. Right. Yeah. And for your average tea, like you buy at the store, I mean, there's no real, real way to know. I mean, you can look at their label, but like, as you mentioned, who knows how legitimate that is, you know? So how do you, is there, there's probably no real way to know or test, right? Yeah, there's not. Um, you know, I mean, some companies will 
will publish their test results uh, along with the tea. Um, but you know, how are you going to find that in the store, right? You're shopping and you know, exactly. Exactly. Uh, you're not going to see it. And, you know, pay attention to shelf life, uh, particularly if it's in tea bags, uh, because what happens is when you, when you, it's called tea bag cut, TBCT, when you cut it to go in the tea bag, you increase the surface area. And when you increase the surface area, it means that you start, you accelerate the oxidation. That makes sense. So the the reasonable shelf life of a tea that's a whole leaf tea is much longer than the shelf life of a tea that's been cut to go in tea bags. Um, and you know the other thing to pay attention is, is you know what are your tea bags made out of? So most uh, tea bags, frankly, carry microplastics. Mm, yep. And those microplastics are released when you put them in hot water. So the you know the very the very process of putting the tea bag in the water releases those those microplastics into your diet. And, you know, even if it is a tea bag that's made from, you know, cornstarch, for example, which, you know, we use cornstarch, there, there are two ways to do that. And one of them is essentially creating a plastic from cornstarch. So you're, you're still consuming plastic. It just happens to be a plastic that instead of being a petrochemical sourced is, is, is sourced from corn. Um, so, you know, you have to pay attention to things like, you know, not just what, where did the tea come from and, you know, is, is it organic certified and, you know, is it legitimate, but you also have to pay attention to, you know, how it's packaged. So there's, there's a, a ton of things to think about, unfortunately. Yeah, I was aware of, I try to always get loose leaf tea when I can, as opposed to bags, but I didn't realize how in depth the, the, the dangers were. So thank you for sharing that. That's a great tip. Yeah, sure. So let's, so let's, oh, good. No, I was going to say, even the way they glue the bag, I mean, I, this is, I'm getting into, I'm geeking out on you, and I apologize for that, but, <laughs> but you know, even if you get paper bags, if you look at the paper bags, they're very often either stapled with a piece of metal, which is not great, um, or worse, the seams are glued, um, and yeah. then, you know, that, that glue ends up releasing things in, in toxins into the into the hot water as well, so. No, that makes sense. That's a great point. That's a great point. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I, I notice that sometimes when I get tea bags, most of them are very, yeah. Good tip. So just stick with whole leaf. <laughs> yep, absolutely. That's the way to go. Well, let's dig into the fun stuff. Let's talk about the teas. Uh, the the is it is it is it um how do you, is it ganastema ganastema how what's the proper way to say it? Yeah, you know, I'm not even I am not 100 percent sure that I've been selling this stuff for for 20 years. Um, I usually say ganastema, but um, it's uh the um uh you know it it's it's Latin derived. Um, I, I should know the answer to that, but it's a question that comes up to, for, for me myself, and, and I, I'm not sure I know the right answer. So, some, I mean, I've, I mean, I've done my own reading on it, and of course, your, um, your articles have talked a little bit about too, in terms of you know helping with the uh, metabolism and mitochondrial function, slowing the aging process, right. immune system, blood pressure control, a lot of benefits. So, yeah, let's let's uh, if you want to, I'll let you run and just tell us a little bit about some of the benefits, how it works, and uh, feel free to keep it as simple as you want, or get if you want to get into the weeds a little bit on chemistry, that's fine too, so. Okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm a science nerd, so I have a tendency <laughs> to get into the weeds, so, you know, feel free to wave me off. Um, yeah, I mean, gynostema, there, there are basically three compounds that are, that are, you know, responsible for the majority of the health benefits that, that come from, from uh, gynostema. The first one is, uh, which I'm sure you're familiar with because, you know, you're big into mitochondrial health, uh, is AMPK. Mm -hmm. uh, and AMPK is a, you know, a central metabolic uh, regulator. Uh, e essentially, uh, when AMPK levels are high, it, sh it, it does a few things uh, to your mitochondria. It shifts your metabolism from an anabolic mode to a catabolic mode. So you're burning energy instead of trying to store energy. Um, it also stimulates increased mitochondrial fission. So you're, you're increasing the number of mitochondria that are present. And it also increases mitochondrial activity. And uh, AMPK is normally stimulated in your body uh, whenever it's exposed to some kind of stress, uh, where you know the, the, the health definition of stress and sort of the colloquial definition of stress are different. <laughs> yes. right? So, you know, from, from a health standpoint, stress is a good thing. Uh, you know, if I, if I exercise, I'm stressed, I'm, I'm creating stress. If I, if I fast, I'm creating stress. So 
the uh, the body's reaction to any of those stressors is to increase AMPK production uh, and you know consequently increase the production of energy. So you know the idea evolutionarily is is you know my body's experiencing stress of some kind. I obviously need the energy to respond to that stress. So I'm going to increase mitochondrial function instead of instead of storing fat. Uh, so with increased AMPK function, now you're you know you're speeding up your metabolism. Uh, you you burn more energy. Um, it also stimulates uh, autophagy, uh, so you're you're getting rid of uh, cells that are no longer highly functional. Uh, so you know there's a benefit from that as well. So you know that's the AMPK benefit, uh, and that has you know benefits for weight loss. Uh, you can think of, you know, I, I was, I talked about a paper that came out, um, in June of last year, recently, they took 111 people and they split them up into two groups. And, you know, they had one group supplement with gynostoma and the other group was, was a control group. And they, they looked at obesity, uh, and they had those people do it, uh, if I recall correctly for, uh, 16 weeks. So basically, um, four months. And uh, after four months, the group that was taking gynostoma lost weight uh, significantly compared to the, the control group, but they also reduced belly fat. Uh, so, so men reduced belly fat, women reduced uh, gynoid fat, gynoid fat being you know, the, the hips and the waist. Awesome. Um, so what that shows is, you know, not only are you increasing the metabolism, but you're, you're preferentially, uh, you know, you're reducing fat storage and you're, and you're burning additional fat. So, um, you know, then there's a lot of studies that, that show that benefit. And that, that's the result of increasing AMPK and improving mitochondrial function. So, you know, that, that's benefit number one. Yep. Um, the second big benefit is uh, increased production of superoxide dismutase. So you're, you know, we, we all sort of talk about the benefits of antioxidants all the time. And, you know, we're, we're all trying to, you know, reduce the number of free radicals. But when you consume an exogenous form of antioxidant, very little of that actually makes it into your body, right? Because, you know, it's yep. going through the digestive system. There's lots of chemistry going on. Um, so, you know, if you just as an example, if you drink a glass of orange juice and you're, you know, you're hoping to increase your, your vitamin C because you drank a, a glass of orange juice, something like less than 5% of the antioxidant benefit of that orange juice actually ends up in your body. Right. So I'm a big fan of things that cause your body to increase its own internal production of beneficial compounds. So, you know, rather than supplementing for AMPK production, for example, right? Um, I'm, I'm digressing a little bit, but, you know, for example, a lot of, uh, athletes will, uh, supplement with L-arginine, right? Yep. And they're doing that to increase AMPK production, but how much of the L-arginine actually makes it into your body, right? Yeah, very little. Yep. Right. On the other hand, if you consume uh, gynostoma and you just cause your body to increase its own internal production of AMPK, now you now you've got a benefit that uh, has greater efficacy, and it's the same thing for superoxide dismutase. It's an internally produced antioxidant, uh, and by stimulating the increased production of that antioxidant, you're realizing the full benefit of the uh, the increase in in antioxidant presence. So um, you know superoxide dismutase is great. It um, you know it does lots of good things in terms of uh, anti carcinogenic benefits, uh, increasing the immune function. Uh, it helps reduce cholesterol. So, you know, lots of great, great benefits coming out of increasing superoxide dismutase uh, production. And then the last thing is increased nitric oxide. Uh, and again, um, you could take nitric oxide as, and, and athletes do yeah. uh, take nitric oxide supplementation. Um, you know, it, it happens to be the, uh, the active ingredient in Viagra, right? Correct. But um Nitric oxide is great because it is a natural vasodilator. So now you're uh, you're increasing blood flow. Uh, that increases uh, memory function, brain function. Um, it increases oxygen flow to all of the organs. Uh, it reduces blood pressure, reduces cholesterol. So you know tons of benefits from increasing nitric oxide production as well. So you know sort of across the board, you're hitting you know metabolic fitness antioxidant health, um, you're reducing blood pressure, 
you have benefits for things like diabetes. There are very few other, um, you know, herbs out there or supplements that you can take that have that kind of broad spectrum benefit. And so, you know, for me, um, you know, that that's the one herb that I just won't go without. You know, I have to, I have to have my, my God, <laughs> you know, I drink coffee. I'm a huge fan of coffee, drink it every day. Yeah. But as soon as, as soon as I finish my cup of coffee, now I'm ready for my ganasana, and, and that's just you know it's 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 part of my life. Oh, that's awesome! No, it's impressive. Uh, the benefits I was familiar with some of those. Not I didn't. I kind of forgotten about the nitric oxide benefit, but the AMPK, the mitochondria, is great. And I I kind of talk about that with my patients too about trying to boost your own production of natural antioxidants. Like you said, you know you can take all these. C and you know all these over-the-counter antioxidants most of them don't work and some some people take too much of it and actually uh you can be too antioxidant you know have too much antioxidant in your system it's about oxidation reduction you got to have that balance you know some some is good but not too much so it's kind of finding that sweet spot so it's that's hard how, how do you know whether or not you're in that sweet spot sweet spot i mean what are you measuring to know whether or not someone has for example excess antioxidants well, that's the hard part. There's no real quick and easy test per se. I think there are some uh, surrogate markers you could check in the blood work to kind of look at your your ratios. And I don't remember the all of them off the top of my head, but yeah, I don't think there's, unfortunately, there's, uh, you know, when you go and get your blood work, get check your, you know, your blood sugar, your insulin, but there's no quick test for that, unfortunately. So it's hard. Sometimes you can go clinically like, uh, and like a lot of athletes will, if they're overdoing their antioxidants, they're noticing a dip in their performance. Um mm -hmm or they're not recovering because they're doing too much. Uh, so you need some of that, you know, some of that oxidation, you know, to, to act as signaling pathways to heal. Kind of like when you work out you, you heal and you grow and you recover. So if you're not recovering, not sure. you know, so it's the kind of the same concept. So yeah, I don't think there's a quick test to, to do that. That's the hard part. That'd be cool if we could come, maybe you could help me come up with something like that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. There's, there's no substitute for paying attention to the signals your body is signaling you. It's just, right. Um, yeah, I mean, that's why they, people need somebody like you, because, you know, we don't even know what, what things to pay attention to. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, you know, you need, you need somebody who, who's knowledgeable in the domain to say, you know, Hey, I noticed this when I, when I work with you, that, you know, you, you're exhibiting this kind of trait or, or, you know, the, the third work, workout of the week, you're, you're tired or than I would expect you to be. And, you know, maybe you right. need to make these changes. Yeah, I was doing the Ganasma for a while there and I kind of forgotten about it. So I'm glad I found you. I, mean, I need to definitely get back on that because I like tea and I, I, you know, I like coffee too, but I do like to drink tea, but I kind of, I was kind of rotating between the Ganasma and black and green and different things. And I, I like to try different, different products too. And just sure. to see, um, what are your thoughts on, uh, comparing to say like a good green tea or a black tea? I know that's a completely different type of tea, but do you, do you, uh, play around with other teas as well? Or what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do. Um, oddly enough, for a guy in the tea business, um, green tea makes me nauseous. Really? Interesting. So, so yeah, green, green tea is the, the, the if you're going to, you know, Camellia sinensis, the, you know, the actual tea plant, if you're going to, which I think is, is highly beneficial. Um, if you're going to actually consume it, green tea is the healthiest form of it. Uh, but I, I personally can't do it. Oh, yeah. So, That's interesting. Um, That's interesting, huh? So I will, uh, I, you know, I use a, a really mild black tea, uh, even stronger black teas. I have the, I have the same reaction to, uh, or I'm a huge fan of white tea. Hmm. So, uh, yeah. you know, my, my go-to tea is, is when I'm, when I'm drinking regular tea is, is white tea. Um, but you know, I just honestly, because, because it makes me a little bit nauseous, I don't personally consume a lot of regular tea. Yeah. Um, uh, for a while I was really into it. Uh, especially sort of the high-end gourmet teas. And I, you know, I, I spend a lot of time researching them and, you know, tea tasting and traveling yeah. around China and Thailand and, and um, Taiwan, uh, you know, doing tea tastings and that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, it, it was always more to find good teas for my customers than it was because I personally enjoyed it. Just, uh, it's a... Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, that's interesting. That is interesting. And just to reiterate to my listeners, I think it's awesome that the benefits just of the Ganasma tea is just, you know, you know, so many hidden benefits and it's a, and it's an easy tea to drink. I've never had any issues with it. It's not like it doesn't taste weird or bitter or anything. I, I, you know, the taste is fine. You can obviously put something in there if you want to, but the, you know, a lot of my patients come to me for weight loss or improving their, you know, anti-aging mitochondrial function or, right the indirect benefit of nitric oxide. So, you know, I just launched a weight loss program for women. And I, obviously I work with a lot of men who have, uh, they're working on sexual health or put on muscle or losing fat. Women are looking to lose fat. So 
um, as you mentioned. And, and I saw your your email with that study. I think that's fascinating that something as simple as a tea can be a natural way to help, you know, burn the fat, you know, get your cell your cells working more more uh, effectively, which is what I try to do. So I think that's a great, simple, natural way to to do those things. So thanks for bringing that to our attention. No, absolutely happy to do it. Um, it's uh, the, the taste is interesting because um, I mean this kind of loops back my my, my two lives because it relates to genetics. <laughs> Some people taste uh, gynostema as bitter, and some people taste it as sweet. And there are two varietals, right? So there is a there is a varietal of gynostema. I, I don't sell it because you know I, I think that if you're going to get people to do something and they, they need to enjoy it, so I, I don't focus on the bitter kind. Yeah. Um, but even the what they call sweet gynostema, um, some people taste it as bitter and some people taste it as sweet. And it's it's a it's a gene. It's like some people like cilantro, some people hate cilantro. Uh, yep. Uh, it's uh, it's it's the same thing with ganastema. Some people taste it just as intensely bitter, and some people taste it as as quite sweet. It was actually investigated in the '70s as an artificial sweetener. Oh, really? Wow. Um, and and you know it it and it was a Japanese project. Uh, the Japanese call call it amachizuru. Uh, which, which um, you know, implies sweetness from the, from the name, uh, and they they tried to make an artificial sweetener out of it, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't a strong enough sweet taste uh, to to be commercially viable. You had to process just tons of it uh, in order to make it work. Interesting, um, interesting. Huh. Yeah, it's 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 an it's a it's an unusual herb. Yeah, I'm trying to think back the last time I had it. Yeah, I don't recall it being bitter. Um, I don't really recall it being sweet either. But I put. Usually I put a little bit of honey in my tea anyway, so I don't really oh, pay much attention. You know, I just drink it. <laughs> right, right. Thank what you. about, some, let's talk about like, hey, just real quick, you could talk about some of your other tea too, the white mulberry. And you mentioned, I think, what, buckwheat? What are the other ones you have? Uh, buckwheat and hibiscus, hibiscus. Um, you know, are, are, you know, by far the best seller is the gonostoma, which is, you know, where we started. Um, num number two for us is white mulberry. Uh, and the main benefit of white mulberry is uh, as, as a benefit for people who struggle with uh, high blood sugar. Okay, interesting. Um, yeah, the, um, the, the main ingredient in, or the main compound in white mulberry is uh, a compound called D&J. And it's a, it's a glucoside inhibitor. Hmm. Uh, essentially, you know, um, without getting too deep into the woods, the, the molecule itself is quite similar to a sugar molecule. Uh, it, it's really just a sugar molecule with two carbons moved. Um, and so what happens is when that compound is in your digestive system, the enzymes that normally break down sugars so that the sugars can be, so they've broken down from polysaccharides into monosaccharides so that they can be absorbed into your bloodstream. The enzymes that do that instead bind with this D&J compound um, and then they're bound to it, but they can't break it down. So it ends up just passing through your system as waste. Hmm. But that means that there are fewer of those um, uh, enzymes available to break down sugar. And so the sugar ends up passing through your body as well without being processed. Interesting. Uh, so it's a, it's a pretty interesting uh, little compound. Um, yeah. It's, uh, it, you know, there are... Um, alpha glucoside inhibitors that are pharmaceutical drugs so right. you know you, you you could just you know buy the drug and you know take that approach but if you want a, a natural milder uh, approach to it uh, white mulberry is a great way to go um, it does have to be in your body at the time that you're consuming the complex carbohydrates that you're trying to avoid so it's it doesn't have a lingering effect um, so it's one of those things that you want to, uh, you know, drink a cup of tea while you're, while you're having that cake. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, or, you know, you can, we actually sell it, uh, as a, as a powder that can be just mixed into foods. So you can just, you know, add a tablespoon to, you know, um, a dish while you're, while you're cooking it and it'll turn it a nice bright green color <laughs> and, you'll, and you'll also get the benefits of the DNJ while you're, uh, while you're doing it. So, that's, uh, that, that's a pretty that's a pretty cool herb that people should know more about. Um, the uh, it, it's probably extraneous information, but the the leaves of white mulberry are a hard waxy leaf. They're big leaves, first of all. They're like you know they're like this big, right? Okay. So to, uh, to to you can't actually consume it as whole leaf. You have to you have to shred it to begin with. 
Okay. Um, and then the leaves themselves don't um, release the, the active compounds very easily. So unlike, um, you know, gynostomy, I would advise people to keep the temperatures fairly low. You don't want to, to overbrew it. Uh, but in the case of mulberry tea, you want to use pretty hot water and you want to increase the brewing times because it does take longer and require higher temperatures to release the DNJ compound that we're talking about. Um, but yeah, so mulberry is a great, great, uh, great additional herb. Uh, it's also rich in um, things like rutin. Um, so, um, you know, there's, there's metabolic benefits and, and um, cholesterol reducing benefits from, from things like rutin as well. So um, that's, that's another good herb to go for. No, that's very, no, that I did not know about the way mulberry. That's fascinating and, and how that works. Um, because yeah, a lot of my patients are insulin resistant, losing weight or pre-diabetic or uh, yeah. PCOS kind of stuff. So something like that would be very, I mean, I always recommend like, you know, I, as you mentioned, there's medications, which I use, but some people are, it's mild or they don't want to do that. They'll, you know, they'll try to do the natural approach, you know, things like apple cider vinegar and cinnamon and et cetera. Mm-hmm. But this would be a nice way to tweak that. I can, I see a nice one-two punch of uh, the gynostoma and then later on doing the white mulberry to kind of help regulate blood sugars. That'd be kind of interesting. Um, yeah. You know, oddly enough for a while, we did a blend. Um, we called integrity. I had to stop doing all, I can explain to you why I had to stop doing it, but um, the uh, I was, I was at a conference and a guy came up to me and he had been on um, this, this, this TV show, uh, Biggest Loser. Yeah. Uh-huh. And he'd uh, he'd spun off the notoriety from that to start his own sort of you know coaching program and weight loss thing, and okay. um, he came he came up to me and said you know I really want to launch a weight loss tea can you can you create a weight loss tea for me? So you know I went off and thought about it for a little while and I you know I mean Ganastam and Mulberry were easy right yeah <laughs> so um, I, I put the two of those together along with an Indian herb called Tulsi and green tea. Oh yeah, uh-huh. um, and so you know, I put I I blended those together in in a combination that was both uh, uh, you know tasted good, but um, had you know very real benefits. The guy ended up not ever actually doing anything with the uh, the tea, so oh, really? I launched it myself. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, it was one of those weird things. He uh, he was all excited about it. He had me develop it, and then when uh, and we you know we talked about pricing and all that stuff, and then when we got to the point where it was time for him to actually put money up, he didn't have the money and just said, you know, <laughs> sorry, sorry, I don't have the money to actually do this. So it's what okay I because I you know I you know I launched the tea and the, the, it was very popular. People love the tea, um, uh, and I may redo it again in the future. I, I hope to. Um, I had to stop doing it because I could no longer source the Tulsi the way I wanted to. Um, it's, uh, you know, it, it's a herb that's readily available in India, uh, but the logistics of getting Tulsi to uh, either China or Thailand was, was difficult. Um, they do grow it in Thailand, but the quality was terrible, and uh, I wasn't confident that the people growing it were doing it the right way. Gotcha. Um, so, so I ended up just discontinuing the product, but yeah, you can just take, you know, you could do it yourself, right? You could, yeah. Tulsi is readily available in most, uh, you know, uh, health food stores. You could take, uh, you know, Ganostema, Mulberry, Tulsi, and add a little green tea, and you, you've got a blend that's, you know, really yeah. powerful for, for nice. so, yeah. yeah. Before I forget, I just thought of this, but any recommendations for people listening? Like, is there an, an optimal way to steep both of these teas? Like how how hot, how long, that kind of thing? Or, or does it, how, how much variability is there? Yeah, you uh, for, for the, for, in the case of Ganostoma, you want to keep the temperature uh, fairly low, about uh, 80 degrees. Um, and then you, uh, it depends on how you like the taste. Uh, I typically brew it about three minutes, which is really fast. Uh, and that makes a pretty mild cup of tea. If you like your tea stronger, you can go longer, say up to 10 minutes. I wouldn't go longer than 10 minutes because it will start getting intensely bitter if you if you leave it longer than that. Gotcha. Okay. In the, in the case of mulberry tea, you want the temperature very close to boiling. So, uh, on, you know, on the centigrade scale, something like 90 to 100 degrees. Uh, and so, you know, very hot and you want to steep it much longer. You want to go maybe, you know, minimum, you want to go eight minutes and you could go up to, you know, 10, 15 minutes and it would be fine. 
Uh, it won't get bitter on you. So you could, you know, you can increase the, the brewing time as much as you want. Uh, but you do want to brew at least eight minutes to get get the benefit from it. Interesting, interesting. And that complicates things when you blend them together, by the way. Yeah, so yeah. Now, 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 you've got, now, now you've got a tea that wants to be brewed for three minutes, and it's, it's you know, in the same pot as a tea that wants to be brewed eight minutes. And yeah. you know, the, the, the solution is just to overbrew the, the one that doesn't want to be brewed as long. So, you know, go go for the longer length of time, and you'll, okay. you'll, okay. You'll, you'll, you'll get a little bit of bitterness from the gunnestum, but it'll be okay. So you do a lot of, I know you've written a lot of articles too. It's interesting. You talked a little bit about, you know, weight loss and fasting and things like that too. Is that something that you just kind of piqued your interest? Do you do that yourself? Cause I, I recommend a lot of that for my, not all of my patients, but a lot of my patients as well. What's your, uh, and that, and that fits in with what we were talking about with the teas. Right. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a big fan of intermittent fasting as you probably picked up from my blogs and, and, and my emails. Um, I do it myself regularly. Uh, I try to do a extended, so I, I'm, I'm, are you familiar with Walter Longo, Dr. Walter Longo? Yeah, his, uh, yep, exactly. Yeah. His protocol. So he's a, he, yeah. His thing is the fast mimicking diet. I made my own version of the FMD. Uh, you know, it, he's got his own, uh, packaged, uh, product where you right. can buy it, you know, in a, in a box ready yeah. to go. Um, and I, I think that's a good product. It's just expensive. And, yeah. and I can't get it. I can't get it where I live anyway. So I, uh, I created my own fast mimicking diet where I took uh, actually traditional Ukrainian food. Because when I did this, I was living in Ukraine. Oh, wow. And I said, I said, you know, what what foods do I have here that are readily available that will help me create an FMD? So I used um, uh, fermented cabbage. Fermented foods are really big as part of a just Ukrainian diet. Yeah. So I, uh, I used fermented cabbage and uh, buckwheat. Which is uh, it's a staple grain in in Ukraine, and and a few other things. I just created my own, you know, very low ca calorie, fast mimicking diet. That you know, I make sure that I get all the the right uh, blend of, of macronutrients, but you know, very small quantities. I tend to do that once every three months, mm -hmm. uh, and then you know, for intermittent fasting, uh, I I'm less rigorous now than I was. I have to admit that I've 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 not I'm not doing it as consistently as I should. What I did for a very long time was I just made every Friday a fasting day. Yeah. That's a nice, easy way to do it. Yeah. I, I, I'm like you, I, uh, I'll do it sometimes, but not as much as I should. I just enjoy eating too much, but, uh, but I'll, I'll rotate sometimes yeah. I'll do it for a while. Then I'll get off it. And I'm a big fan of kind of rotating things, cycling strategies anyway. So, um, yeah, but yeah, that's yeah, great. I mean, Friday, Friday was the day I cheated the most, you know? So I said like, you know, rather than trying to, um, moderate my behavior on Fridays when, you know, I'm, I'm out with friends or whatever, or we have guests over, right. uh, instead I'll just say that's my fasting day. And then, then, you know, <laughs> I, I remove, I remove the temptation completely. So that, that was my strategy. It was really just, um, you know, hacking my own psychology, right? Yeah. Keep yourself out of trouble that way. Right. <laughs> right. These days it's, uh, you know, I, I'd be interested what your advice is. I, you know, I, I know how bad it is to eat late. Yeah. But I'm managing in a company that's based in the U.S. from Montenegro, right? So you, you and I have a six-hour time difference. And to the West Coast, where my where our chief science officer is located, you know, I have a nine-hour difference. Mm -hmm. So I end up routinely working, you know, late. Um, yeah. You know, uh, it's I was I was complaining to my wife the other day that I I, I have the 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 bad health trifecta, right? I'm, I'm sitting at my desk for, you know, routinely well over 12 hours a day. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I'm, I'm not exercising as much as I should. And then I get home late and I'm eating and then go straight to bed. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's like, it couldn't be a worse regimen, you know, in, in terms, in terms of the health. And I, and I haven't found a solution to that. I, you know, I, I, I come home and I, I tell myself, but I'm sitting at the office at my desk, you know, I'm looking at the clock and I'm like, okay, it's after eight o'clock or it's after nine o'clock. I'm when I go home, I'm not going to eat. Right. And then I go home and you know, the food smells are still lingering yeah. and you know, <laughs> the, the, the kids are there eating snacks, you know, waiting, waiting for someone to put them to bed. And I'm like, okay, you know, I'll, I'll just, I'll just eat a little bit. And then, and then, and then you know, the next thing I know is I, I I've eaten a full dinner and, and go straight to bed. It's, you know, I know how bad it is for me, but, it's, it's hard, hard not to. 
Oh, for sure. You know, maybe you could uh, have a rule where, you know, the kids, you know, if you get home at nine, say kids, make sure eat your snack at eight, put everything away. So there's no food out. Or there's no smells when you right. get home. And then maybe just set a time or a reminder on your phone, you know, maybe two or two or three hours before you're done to eat something, go ahead and eat, but just give yourself a yeah. window. That way, when you get home, you're not hungry, you're full and there's nothing around you to tempt you, you know? Yeah, that's probably the only the only solution is yeah. uh, you know conscientiously eat in the office before I go home, and then you know try try to remove all the temptation when I get home. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, if you're you know obviously you can't avoid those late days, so it's just yeah you're gonna have to kind of yeah. like workers, you know, I tell them just to back it, just to kind of flip the schedule a little bit, and so just eat earlier, you know, which is still late at night, but earlier than what you normally would. Uh, right. At least that way you're going to bed. You know, it's okay to eat a little bit later, but make it something that's you know. Uh, a little bit healthier, a little more satiating and, um, you know, we'll digest quickly, like maybe just do a protein shake and a piece, you know, uh, or maybe some vegetables with some, or, or some, you know, something like that, a couple of nuts or some, you know, something simple to right. fill right. you up, uh, kill that craving and, and yet digest relatively quickly. And then you have, you know, a couple hours to let it digest and that's okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yep. You know, and because and, sometimes I'll, I'll do something late at night too, but I try not to, but if it is that maybe I'll just do like right. a, a small protein shake or just something small. And then even if it's just an hour or two, that's not ideal, but at least it'll, it's small and it'll digest pretty quickly, but um, you definitely don't want to eat like a, a huge dinner and then go to bed. Yeah. That's probably not good. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it's uh, I, I know that it's just, you know, we're, we're all human, I guess. And I, yeah. uh, I, I've noticed lately that, I, that, that that's a challenge. Absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I drink enough gynostoma that my weight's, you know, I don't have a problem with weight. But, that's good. Uh, that's I, good. I, I know that I know that there are other um, bad things that happen as a result of all that late night eating. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And if you're sitting on the computer all day, just try to get up every, you know, 15, 20 minutes and move around a little bit. Do, you know, squat up and down, just, you know, move jumping jacks. Just try to move me a little bit. That's OK. I'll break it up. Yeah. Uh, I mean, one of the things that I, I'm trying to do is, you know, I'll, you know, I do a lot of, um, you know, Zooms. Right. Mm -hmm. But in. But there's really, it's not essential that people actually see me, right? Right. So I'll, I'll take the Zoom on my phone and just go for a walk. Yeah, there you go. Perfect. Uh, and, you know, where I live is nice. You know, I, I literally walk, you know, 100 meters away and I'm, I'm, on, I'm on the sea. So you know, awesome. I walk along the shore and, you know, look, look at all the expensive yachts that I can't actually afford, but I just <laughs> look at them and, and, you know, do these phone calls while I'm walking. So that's yeah, perfect. Uh, that's I talk on the phone all the time. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of that for sure. Is is this the company the company you're referring to? Is this the genetics company or is this something else? Yeah, yeah, no, this is this is a genetics company. What is that? What do you guys do? Or if you want to give a, a quick quick hit on that, if you're if you if you wish. Yeah, no, I mean I can. I I work for a company called Self Decode, uh, and essentially what we do is the, the the core competence is something called polygenic risk scoring. So we. Uh, take someone's uh, genetics uh, based on usually a saliva sample. Uh, we do something called genotyping, which means that we are directly measuring about 750,000 genetic variants. And then we do on top of that something called imputation. So uh, imputation basically means we determine the individual's ancestry from their genetics. And then we use a reference genome to guess the rest of their genome. Uh, but but we're we're really good guessers. We have a ninety seven percent accuracy. So uh, now we have eighty three million genetic variants to work with. Wow! And then uh, there are you know widely published and you know ongoing research called genome wide association studies where uh, researchers just look at um, people's health information, phenotypical information, and they look for relationships between the occurrence of certain uh, genetic variants and the frequency of a particular health condition. And uh, it turns out that, you know, I mean, we're sort of used to, you know, people who have rare genetic diseases that, you know, a single gene or a handful of genes cause some sort of illness. But most health conditions are actually highly polygenic, meaning that thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands, uh, in the case of, you know, chronic conditions like high blood pressure or diabetes, literally millions of genetic variants have an impact on that condition. And so what we do is we use artificial intelligence to calculate the weighted impact of each individual genetic variant. 
And then we look at that person's genotype and do they have the risk allele for that, that gene or do they have the beneficial allele for that gene? And then we add up, we sum up the contributions of those, you know, in some cases, millions of genetic variants to come up with a score for that person relative to other people of the same ancestry. So, um, you know, that, and, and, and that's super critical because um, if you use the wrong reference genome, uh, the results are completely off, right? That's and, and, and almost all genetic research is done uh, based on public data biobanks out of uh, the UK or Europe. So it's almost all white Europeans. Okay. So if you're, um, you know, an African-American or you're Hispanic and you get the results from uh, a genetic analysis, if they didn't use the right reference genome, if they didn't go get a Latin-based reference genome to do everything else in the process, then the, the results are not going to be valid for you. So, um, you know, what makes us unique is, is the ability to um, accurately determine ancestry and then impute the variance and do the polygenic risk scoring analysis based on a reference genome that's appropriate for the individual's ancestry. So, you know, 10,000 feet, that's what we do. We tell people for common health conditions, what's their genetic predisposition. Right. And then um, beyond just telling them, okay, you know, you're a high risk, big deal. What do I do about that? Right. So then we look specifically to their genes and say, for your genes, here are 10 to 20 things that you could do specifically that would mitigate your risk. So, you know, based on your genes, you have trouble metabolizing this compound. Right. So if you ate this food, you'd increase the presence of that compound. So the, the recommendations that we make are very specific to the individual's uh, genetics. So it's, it's, you know, for your ancestry, here's your genetic predisposition. And then um, here's a set of recommendations specific around your genetics that you could, you could implement in your, in your lifestyle or diet uh, that would mitigate your risk. Um, and then we cross correlate that with conventional biomarkers. So we take in basically any common blood test, fecal test, urine test, and we cross correlate your conventional biomarker data with your genetics to come up with a, you know, a sort of combined uh, risk. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. I've, I've heard of uh, self-decode and I'm, I've done some you know epigenetic tests, you know, myself and uh, played around. Right. Them. I think that the science is very, it's fascinating. It's very interesting for sure. And, um, yeah. and I think, I think, as you mentioned, it's, it's important to correlate that with other tests and clinical symptoms, because sometimes it's, it's interesting, but it doesn't necessarily have a clinical correlation and you have to kind of merge the two together for sure. Yeah, hundred percent. That's actually the biggest challenge in the genetic space is, you know, how do I make this stuff clinically useful? You know, yeah. um, roughly, uh, one out of every five Americans already have their genetics, uh, mostly because they want to know their ancestry, but it's the same data. Yep. Um, but there's like, okay, I've got this data. What do I do? Right. Uh, and the uh, stratifying conventional biomarkers. So, yeah. um, and I'm, I'm again, Eric, I'm in the weeds and I apologize, but <laughs> here, here's, here's the clinical utility. Um, if you have a genetic predisposition for something and your conventional biomarkers or your blood tests, let, let, let's be specific. Let, let, let's say you have genetic predisposition for diabetes. And sure enough, your, your, your blood sugar levels are high. That person is probably an ideal candidate to immediately start a drug intervention because, because of their genetic predisposition, they're unlikely to respond well to lifestyle interventions. So, you know, that individual, you know, that's the classic patient who comes in and they're doing all the right stuff and their blood sugar is still high. They probably just have a genetic predisposition for that condition. Right. Conversely, if somebody's genetics say, look, you don't have a predisposition for this, but their blood tests say that they have high blood sugar, that person is a great candidate for a lifestyle intervention. So instead of going straight to the metformin, let's you know get that person on an exercise program, let's improve their diet, and they're much more likely to respond to those kinds of you know lifestyle interventions than somebody who has a, a high genetic predisposition. And so that stratification of people who are, you know, based on conventional tests, they're at risk, right? Okay. Is this someone that I should immediately go to a pharmaceutical intervention or is this somebody that will respond to lifestyle? That analysis is true across 
you know, almost all chronic health conditions. So, you know, cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure, a uh, broad range of mental things like, you know, Alzheimer's degree, Alzheimer's, um, you know, chronic inflammation, uh, you know, basically take any sort of, you know, the illnesses of, of um, affluent society, right? Yep. And all, right. Of those, all of those conditions are highly polygenic and all of them can be, will benefit from doing uh, stratification based on uh, genetic predisposition. So, Interesting. So to reiterate, you, you the, the thought and the trend seems to be, again, if, if there's nothing showing on the genetic testing, but they're showing clinical or some laboratory signs, try lifestyle first and vice versa. If it's a genetic uh, component, then you, they may more than likely need something more pharmaceutical or, you know, hormonal or whatever that may be, right? Interesting. Right, exactly. Yep, yeah, that makes that's, that, that's the value. There have been some great studies on it. Um, for example, there was a study published in September of last year on cardiovascular disease. And they took people who were at elevated risk for cardiovascular based on you know, conventional blood tests. Um, and then they stratified those people. And the people who were in the top 10% of risk based on polygenic risk score were 77 times more likely to have an acute coronary event. Wow, interesting, interesting. Yeah, I mean, huge yeah. numbers. Um, yeah. Similarly, for for diabetes, there was a there was a study that came out last year on diabetes that showed that if you did the same sort of stratification, you you looked at people who are at elevated risk, and you said, you know what, we're going to add to the diagnostics um, polygenic risk score something like I, I'll probably don't not remember the number exactly right, Eric, so don't quote me, but something like forty million Americans would get reclassified as diabetics if you just added polygenic risk score to the diagnostic. That's crazy, isn't it? That's that's yeah. scary, very scary. But it's yeah, fascinating. It's and hopefully, for f fertile grounds for future research and treatments and protocols, etc. So, yeah, for for a science geek like me, it's it, it's heaven. You know, I mean, I I, I, get to, <laughs> I get I get to play with software and I get to right? you know do do genetics analysis. And it's, uh, that's it's, excellent. Uh, it's like for for a guy like you know uh, a physicist converted to to the health field. It's it's right. It's a lot of fun. Well, I, I have a feeling I may have to do a part two. I think we could talk for a long time. I'm going to have to, I'm going to try to try to let you go now. And uh, I have to right. move on to my next appointment. You probably have things to do too. I want to be respectful of your time, but uh, yeah, I'd love to have, maybe we could have another conversation, do this again in the near future. That'd be great. I think we could talk about this for hours. Happy to do that. I'm honored <laughs> that you, uh, that you asked me to come on. Uh, really well, enjoy the conversation. Well, shoot, uh, just uh, lay out your website, any plug, anything else you want to for my listeners. And then I'll, uh, before I hit stop. <laughs> you know, the, 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 the T sites, www.immortality.com where the, the ending is T E A. So that's uh that's the website. Be, be grateful for anybody who wants to stop in and check out our teas and, and give them a try. Out. Awesome. Well, Ralph, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Hopefully my, my listeners is too. And then uh, look forward to speaking with you again soon. Great. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Yeah, you.